Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Relating to DevSecOps, where we explore the development, security, and operational issues of today with representation from all parties involved so we can solve some real-world problems with the people that face them. On this podcast, we will debate, challenge each other, maybe clear some air if we're lucky. I'm your host, Ken Toller, representing security, and today I'm joined again by Jameson Colburn for DevOps, but now we are introducing our third co-host, Simon Dolo, to represent product engineering and development. In today's episode, we're going to explore Jameson's love affair with Perl from a development perspective. I, I'm just kidding, but we'll probably <laughs> touch on it at some point. We'll get Simon over here to introduce himself and find out what he thinks about DevSecOps in a second. So, Simon, developer yeah. extraordinaire, tell us a bit about yourself, what brings you to the podcast, and how you ended up here talking to us. Yeah, absolutely. So, I know I've known you guys for a while, obviously. So, I was very interested in joining this podcast. Uh, I think the combination of our three minds introduces some really interesting problems and you're dealing with uh, DevOps, product engineering, security, and how it all mixes together. I've been in tech for I don't even know anymore. Uh, started in computer science. I was super passionate about going into video game development. Uh, realized that was a really uh, intense field to be in, uh, a little bit soul crushing. So I ended up moving into product <laughs> engineering instead. Did you ever uh, like get a video game out the door? Uh, I, I dabbled. I wrote a, a really crappy zombie shooting video game when I was in high school. Like, the worst coding job I've ever done, I think. It was written in, I think it was C Sharp. It's like, <laughs> it's not my best moment. It's it's lying somewhere in the the ether of my, my computer somewhere. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people have that uh, introduction to coding, by the way. Like, I want to do video games and yep. jump in. And I remember... Uh, when I first did development in, in high school, it was Java and C++. And we it was, the first thing we did was try to do dice rolling or solitaire and visual basic. You know, if you can, no judgment nice. here. Okay. <laughs> I'm allowed to talk about visual basic if Jameson's allowed to love Perl. I, I never said I love Perl. I just mentioned, I, I'm thinking, you know, I remember... Uh, creating like blackjack in in C and and you know wonderful things like that. Uh, folks creating like Connect Four, but like that those high school video game projects uh, are definitely near and dear to my heart. I hope to never create one again though. Yeah, no, I so again I think we all and Jameson and I talked about this a little bit on the first episode that we all sort of have similar backgrounds in terms of getting into either applications or tech or IT. And so yep. gaming is definitely one of those things I think draws people to development. And then you sort of realize that it's not all fun and games. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, to me, I, I am like, I'm a huge gamer. I love playing video games. It's more like kind of that, sh like becoming a chef. Like, I don't think like the idea of being a chef and cooking food and then coming home and then like having to do that for yourself feels like it would, it would almost just be soul crushing, which is, like the biggest reason why I didn't go into video game development. Got it. Cool. Well, video games we can get into in a little bit, but obviously the name of this podcast is what is or relating to DevSecOps. And the question that we are trying to ask, I think I think we'll get into the into the groove and try to ask this about everyone that may be a guest if we ever get that far. <laughs> and and we'll continue to sort of define this over time. 
But we were talking about how DevSecOps can generally be seen as this buzzword and folks don't necessarily have a clear definition on what it is. And depending on where you go, you can get different definitions from different companies or different people. So the question that we want to ask you is, you know, what is DevSecOps to you? Uh, what does it mean when you hear that word? What is your immediate reaction? Is it, you know, loathing or excitement, you know? I mean, I have I have mixed feelings about DevSecOps in general. I, I think it's, to, to me, at least coming from the product engineering perspective, I'm here to build cool stuff and launch it, and that's really all I care about. I'll let Simon deal with future problems later, whether it be tech debt or otherwise. But to me, DevSecOps is, is a checks and balances of three organizations that are trying to work together. And I will say, I think my, my relationship with the security field and uh, DevOps in general is very different. I, I, I like to think that DevOps is a good friend to have. Uh, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, while security, at least in my opinion, is just constantly trying to appease the doomsday that is things that we haven't covered yet in security that will eventually hopefully not bite us, but probably will. So uh, how do you, how, from a development perspective, how do you, you know, you, you talk about uh, DevOps sort of enabling development um, and security looking out for development, but what do you prioritize between the two or how do you prioritize? From the DevOps side, it's really what makes my job easier, um, whether it be Automation, and I'll say, I don't think every DevOps team gets this right. And I don't think every product engineering org works well with DevOps. I think it's really it's really easy to uh, lose the the customer, which is at least in my opinion, you know, a, a developer. It's, it's the tools that you're using to build stuff. And if you're not, uh, if you don't have a, a solid relationship with a DevOps team, you, you, you can build all these cool, shiny things. And if nobody uses them, I mean, what's the point? So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's that balance of I, I want to use your tools, but realize that you're ultimately responsible for keeping that infrastructure up. So, uh, you know, balancing that with what I need is is I think the toughest part of working with uh, DevOps in a healthy manner. What about security? <laughs> you just left us out. I mean, you know, I, I that think whole answer you just left. I think us I'm going to be purposely ignoring security for this. <laughs> okay, I think so. You answered the question. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I ultimately answered. I mean. I think I will say it's it's really hard to find developers that are passionate about security that aren't directly involved with a security team, mainly because they're 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 all what ifs, they're all what if potential issues, and I, I just like you know the maturity of of tech companies in general. You've got startups that are really just looking to get their name out there. You reach this level of maturity where you've got uh, sponsors and you've got people that are interested in your company, and you're now this new hot item, and and there's that that pivotal you know, moment of a company where you're starting to go downhill and you need to start being accountable and responsible. And that's where usually you've got companies that start saying, okay, well, maybe we need a security team because we've got eyes on us and we need to make sure that we're covering all of our bases. And that's when it gets important. So it, it's hard so far down the line for a tech company to start embracing essentially a new relationship with a team that's gonna tell you how to do certain things. Yeah. No, I, I get that. And that is unfortunately the catalyst for a lot of security initiatives is a breach or a compliance requirement or something along yep. those lines. So security as a team usually, or I shouldn't say usually, but 
a lot of the time will attach themselves to whatever that need is so that they have buy-in from upper management so that they can then force development or force the organization into a, a good security posture because it because it's something that they're passionate about. But obviously that can make some problems arise between development and other teams. Right. So what we I think what we've all talked about in the past is you know, security needs to have this collaborative relationship with DevOps and with development and with other teams. And that's what this podcast is generally about. So have, aside from these forced, we can call it forced family fun uh, of, <laughs> of like development and security or de uh, development and DevOps from these other initiatives, whether it's compliance or, you know, breach response or something along those lines. Do you have any stories or anything where security convinced you to do something that wasn't the result of maybe a breach or a compliance requirement? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think I'm making it sound like security is the devil and they're awful and they make my life just a living hell, which is not the case. Obviously, I'm, I'm poking fun, but I've had, I've had, I have had really good experiences with some security folks. I, I think the most uh, positive experiences I've had is when they're in the weeds with you. I think level setting and making sure that both sides of the coin are understood and, and both sides being one, let's say I'm the owner of some application, here's the functionality that I understand and, and comparing that to what someone with a security brain is looking at, which is, you know, where are the threats, where's the access control and identifying, hey, I, I'd like to implement these things, but let's compromise because just like anything, when it comes to development, you need to compromise and you need to level set. What's your MVP? What is the things that we care about the most? And when when those sessions have, have taken place, I've, I've seen really positive outcomes. And it, at, at least to me and being a developer has made me excited to be working with security and adding those uh, concerns and mitigating those risks in a way that like I, I, I feel comfortable doing. Got it. So when you talk about collaborating with security, you said something really interesting. And we touched on this in the first episode as well around, you know, Jameson preferring pull requests as a method of communication from security, that they can have this hands-on approach to, um, to implementing security asks. But there's also the collaboration that you're talking about where it may not necessarily be, um, code that they're committing, but just working with you and understanding what your position is. Is that fair or accurate? That's that's one of two parts. I definitely can see engineers dealing with, uh, you know, a security engineer from a coding perspective, from a pull request perspective, uh, sharing notes. I'm I'm 100% all for that. I think it's it's the easiest way to to see what's on somebody's mind of what what sort of message they're trying to convey. There, there is on that note though a a, a level of I, I need advice here. Um, you know, if I'm sending a PDF across a request, like I want to know what implications there are because I'm I might be thinking about uh, scalability, efficiency. You know, obviously meeting the the product ask there, but I I'm probably overlooking a lot of critical things that I should be doing from a security mindset, and that's where those like whiteboarding sessions come in, uh, feedback, advice, and all that good stuff. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm sorry. I was just taking a second to think about that. But one of the things there is 
when a when a security practitioner is is sort of whiteboarding with you and developing these ideas of how they see something unfolding and then you with knowledge of these applications and you mentioned it yourself right that the there you it's very rare that a there is a developer that is passionate about security that is just as much a developer as they are a security practitioner Right. And on the flip side, uh, from a security perspective, it's very difficult to find someone that's just as passionate about security and then also like a, an awesome developer. And they do exist and they're great. But in a world where we don't have, you know, hundreds of thousands of these people with these skill sets and someone that is maybe not a developer commits or, uh, or pushes code, how do you view that? And then how do you help them sort of level up their skill set? And, and and just to make sure I understand, you're talking about a, a security engineer providing either a pull request or a code change or, or something along those lines. Yeah, like let's take your PDF example, right? So they're they're like, well, you know, you're uploading this P PDF and we need to check it for viruses, which is always, you know, a, a common thing that happens. I think we've worked on a project similar to this as well, mm -hmm. where you're uploading this PDF, you need to scan it for viruses, you know, I'm a security practitioner, I just, I put this script together really quick and here, here it is, you know. Um, how do you react to that? As a developer, I just imagine, in my head, the way that I see you seeing this is this like podunk security guy <laughs> is coming up and, you know, delivering me code. Do you do you feel like you want to rewrite that? I mean, how does that play against like, well, okay, well, if I don't rewrite this, then I'm not going to get this in the way that I want it to be in. I have other priorities. We just got delivered this crappy code or, you know, whatever. You know, I'm just thinking, how do you handle that transition from someone that has an idea that thinks, you know, this works? Because from a security perspective, we're looking at developers going, okay, you developed this piece of code and you didn't have any of these con security considerations. And then if we develop code, we're like, here's the here's some security code. And you're like, you didn't have any development considerations. Yeah, I I try to keep myself humble when I deal with that stuff because I can, I've, I've been in situations where the exact opposite has happened, where I have, you know, an architectural design review and someone on a security team is looking at it. And I'm, I'm saying some nonsense like, hey, we're storing some users' confidential information unencrypted as hard-coded strings in a database. And like, I see them try not to vomit and they're like, what is wrong with you? Why are you like, why are you the lead product person on this, this application? And I, it, it's just a, a pull request is what is the message you're trying to convey in schematic. And to me, if I see a security, security engineer going out of their way and they're jumping into an application that they don't, don't fully understand and they're putting up a pull request, I think that's awesome. I can help you drive it to the finish line, but having that code there, I can see where your mindset is at. And I can see, hey, I wanna use this library to help you know remediate some threat, whether it be, you know something along the, the the PDF example. What I can do is provide my knowledge and get that to the, you know, the quote unquote development finish line. Uh, and and it, both of those are extremely important. You, you, you can't do one without the other. Agreed. And I, I think my point about bringing this up is as a security practitioner, whether you're a security engineer or just looking at an application from an architecture perspective, You've now heard from Jameson in the first episode and Simon in the second episode that 
they want to see your pull request no matter how crappy you think them they are and and i've had this experience right that you feel i haven't developed in this application for a long time and i'm afraid to go down this path of committing this code you know and so if i can just get it to you then i i have assistance there Absolutely. And that goes for just pure development as well. I can't tell you how many times I've had an engineer write comments in their code saying, I honestly have no idea what this is doing, but here we go. Let's do this. And that sparks sparks the discussion. Typically, they're right. No one else understands either. And having that in code in a, a language that you cannot lie in is perfect. Yeah. And it's, it's probably worth calling out. I've seen some very talented engineers put, I have no idea what this is supposed to do in a pull request, right? So, I mean, it's definitely not even an ego thing. It's, it's, it's I think, to your point earlier, Simon, it's more about being humble and kind of understanding what you don't know. Yeah. And that takes time building that culture and building that, that, like, you know, that safe space where you can write potentially really crappy code and not be judged and more just use it as a conversation tool is super important for a good tech company. Maybe just a little judgment. A little, yeah, I mean, a little judgment is fine. A little yeah, judgment to keep moving forward. Some healthy judgment. So with that judgment, um, if someone were to submit a pull request to you, maybe written in a language like Perl, how would you react to that? I would throw my computer away. <laughs> <laughs> no, only kidding. Um, I mean, if you want me to soapbox on Perl, I'll soapbox on Perl. Well, we just want to get into it. It I doesn't feel like, belong I feel in like... production. <laughs> you need to cast into a fire or use it to write scripts. Otherwise, keep it away from me. I feel like this is going to generate, uh, you know, a Perl advocate to jump on the show maybe and talk to us about how good it is. And I would love that. Um, so, Jameson, did you want to take on that role? or? I'm okay. I don't write Perl anymore. I think I've said this a few times now. Uh, <laughs> I've transitioned to Python, which is probably the modern Perl uh, with, with all these folks that are writing Go now. But I, I'm there's still a very healthy community out there for Perl. So I, I wouldn't, I would Is, is healthy the right word you want to use there? I, healthy is the right word I want to use. We're only going to, we're only going to like maybe carry this dig for another two or three episodes and then we'll, we'll move on to something else. You'll never <laughs> drop it. I know it now. <laughs> all right. So, um, Simon, anything else you want to talk to about just DevSecOps, the the general definition that you want to touch on? Uh, I mean, it's it's really just going back to the checks and balances. You need like it's building a relationship with a another technical organization that you do not have the specialty in, and, and yeah. I, I I think just having that that understanding helps you bridge that gap. Yeah, and that's a good point. You, we we have representatives here from sort of the traditional development, security, DevOps, or you know operations folks. But there are other organizations that exist that I think DevSecOps, you know, should incorporate. And I know Jameson didn't, um, you know, like sort of agree with my made-up buzzword DevSecBizOps or whatever it was. But the point there was that we want to make sure that all of the organizations that are necessary to make decisions are involved in some way and in a very collaborative way that enhances the communication channels that are there. And that's, that's what I think it's about. So I think we're, we're getting there. Um, yeah. No, go I, ahead. Mean, I would say, Ken, you can add anything to a Venn diagram as long as there's overlap in the end. That's all that matters. That's a great, Beautiful. that's a great visual. 
That's a great visual. I like that. And this this Venn diagram of of DevSecOps, DevOps is I feel gonna grow over time. And so I think we're on the right track. We just All need right. to find our Perl expert, right? Yes, exactly. That's its own circle. So one of the questions that comes up a lot and that I want to address because of how it's incorporated into DevSecOps or DevOps pipelines so early is open source software. And this is especially popular with uh, the increase of the use of containerization, uh, the change of the supply chain and open source software and how you handle images and things of that nature. And on the security side, we're always talking about the importance of keeping software up to date, updating your base images, ensuring that there's no vulnerabilities in these libraries. And we're hounding on this concept that everything needs to be at the latest version all the time. But, you know, and we know that there's compromise involved in that. So I want to ask both of you in this case, how do you look at open source software in your respective disciplines and then you know, how do you decide what to use? How do you react to security when they're asking you to do things? What are like some good ways that you've handled this from a security perspective? Or what are some, you know, maybe unreasonable expectations security had when going down that path? And yeah, I'll, yeah I was going to, I was going to have to name one of you, I think. I was going to say, I guess I could start there. I mean, uh, fundamentally, it's all about GitHub stars, right? It's all whoever has the most GitHub stars is the winner, right? And and that's all that matters. But no, kidding aside, <laughs> I think there's it, it's not an easy thing to do. It's it's not trivial to evaluate a project to see its viability and to see whether or not it's going to have legs, right? So there's a combination of assessing maturity. A lot of that has to do with who are the contributors? Are they is it some sort of corporate sponsor? Is you know not going to name anybody, but <laughs> is one of the big tech companies championing it. Um, and, and then also just kind of adoption, right? How many folks outside of said company are using it? You know, what is the community around it? Um, how responsive are they to issues? Like pick a random issue in, in GitHub, look at maybe a closed one, look at an open one, see how long the open one has been, been there, see how long it took to close one. And, you know, I, I think a lot of it is just, it's a combination of, participation, right? Like how responsive are they to issues? Uh, what does that triage process look like? And just in general, um, do they have a contributor guideline? And, and there's other things like, you know, you can look at tests and you can see how advanced their tests are. You can look at code coverage. There's a lot of different ways to evaluate it, but at the end of the day, a lot of it's just a judgment call, right? And you really just hope you get it right. And that's, that's a big part of it. Uh, but I think the other side of that is really just, understanding where it fits into the business, right? Like if it is something that is completely critical for you to operate, maybe don't go entirely open source, right? Like there's there's a lot of uh, open source value added at this point. You've seen a number of companies successfully monetize an open source business model. And so with that, you know, there are options, but sometimes that library is just open source and you just kind of have to hope for the best. But as I said, at the end of the day, it's really just kind of a judgment call and, and, and having to make sure that everything looks good. Because you can do all the security scanning. They can have awesome code coverage. But if there's like a zero day or something that pops up and they're not responsive to it, it's not going to none of that's going to matter. Right. So that's it's it's tough, really. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with most of that. It's it's really 
I mean, you go to GitHub, just like every everything else, like look up them Yelp reviews, see what's going on. Are people using it? And, and to and to me, from a hey, I'm gonna have to integrate this thing. Is is it easier for me to integrate this library rather than implementing it myself? And that usually is the case for you know whatever I'm trying to solve. I'm not going to uh, rewrite merge sort 1,000 times. That's, there's a <laughs> library for that. Like I did that in college enough. That's fine. So yeah, I mean, can I use it? Is it good? Uh, is it is it fast? Is it scalable? And then finally, sadly, at the end of my list is okay. Well, I now have to convince the security team at the company I'm working at to use this, and that's going to be a fun uphill battle. Right. And I mean, I've seen some pretty good models around this. I'm trying to remember back. I know Google a couple of years ago kind of put out a uh, a way of kind of operating with open source of here's like a general questionnaire of, of like the guidelines to follow there. Uh, but again, even you can have the best plan, you can be seemingly doing everything right. But yeah, it's, it's really what it comes down to. It is it really what is the community like around it? Because that's the other thing too, is the current contributors may not be the person that fixes that issue. So if you have a lot of contributors, have a lot of folks that have eyes on it, it's, you know, it's an active project. It, definitely your uh, chances of success are probably much greater. Right. No, and and we come at it from the same angle, right? We look for libraries that are well-maintained. And the reason I bring this up is exactly why you guys are talking about it. I, I know you joked the stars or the commits or whatever <laughs> it might be. And, and I do think that that's in some way accurate is as there's more eyes on it, that there's more chances that it's going to be maintained, but there's also not necessarily the guarantee that it's going to be maintained well, even though it might be popular. And so what we run into from a security perspective is, one, when things just lose legs, especially security projects, uh, a lot of the security projects I've noticed, you have these security tools and there's maybe, you know, a reInvent, AWS reInvent or a Black Hat, and then all these new security tools come out. And I, tell me, do you guys face a an, an instance where security is bringing you to these new tools and they're just really excited about it and you push back on the basis of, well, let's see how well maintained this is in like two months? Not from a, not security wise, no. Honestly, I I feel like people in security have such a hard time getting things through the door from other orgs <laughs> in general that like from what I've seen, when someone from security comes to me with something, it is the most amazing thing I've ever seen because they know that a developer is going to crap all over their ideas. Every tool I've seen with security is like, check out this amazing thing. The login is easy. You literally just add one little jar to your app and then everything's working. You get emails, it tracks your credit score. It's like the best thing ever. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, well, I can't really crap on this. So fine, I guess I'll integrate your stupid little security tool. And that's sounds- usually how it works. Sounds like you've had some good security engineers. Jameson, do you have a similar experience? I mean, it really depends. Uh, it, a lot of my experience has been always open source is an uphill battle in, in more controlled environments. And, and so I know there's a few models out there as far as assessing the maturity of open source. And I know that like the pinnacle of that is always independent security review, which I think is very rare. <laughs> uh, I think I've seen it a handful of times, if even that. Um, and so with that, I, I've had a lot of cases where security folks bring a tool forward and it's a lot of, there's a lot of excitement around it, but it's generally fairly new. And and so I am placed in the unfortunate position of having to be the voice of reason, which is not um, not a regular position for me, I guess, in, in many cases. Uh, <laughs> what? I, I mean, 
I'm used to being able to live on the bleeding edge a little bit. Not to say I adopt everything there, but kind of being able to evangelize things that like when containers, Docker Swarm was like brand new. And I was like, we need to adopt, we need to set this up tomorrow. This is going to solve so many problems for us. And people are like, you're crazy. What is this? Right. Yeah. And you know, it's evolved into something much more mature and maybe it's not Docker Swarm now it's Kubernetes, but uh, you get the idea. Right. And so I have been in that unfortunate position of having to push back, but I will say the folks that generally bring that kind of stuff forward, I really enjoy working with because it shows a certain engagement with the community that is otherwise lacking. And I know a lot of hardcore like InfoSec, information assurance folks, you know, they're really just looking at the day to day, like what the things that get them excited are like updates to the CIS baseline, right? Which is not the same things that get me, it gets me excited. And so when I do get those tools, especially in the open source world, um, I, I actually really enjoy that conversation because at least then it creates that dialogue between like dev and, and sec and ops and and they can have that conversation around hey what is what are we trying to accomplish with this is there other ways to accomplish it and then if not well let's see where this goes like let's do a poc or something but like maybe let's not throw it in production tomorrow yeah so i so it sounds so we need to find you an open source project that focuses on cis benchmarking written in Perl. Written in Perl. No, I mean, yeah, uh, CIS benchmarks are <laughs> in itself. Before it was disastigs. Now, you know, it just continues to evolve depending on what what uh, vertical you're in, in in what industry. But they're all the same. Uh, I never get excited when they're updated. Uh, so it's going to be tough to find a project that really uh, that, that captures that excitement as well as you know does baselining. Well, I mean, baselining the CIS benchmarks, it's an interesting thing to bring up in this particular conversation because you do, it's a similar approach, the patch management or the hardening to how we look at open source software in terms of we need to get it to the latest version that fixes a security vulnerability or we need to harden the base image or whatever it might be in order to uh, make sure that we are secure going out. And so I think when security finds something that's going to automate something for them, I think that there's the same fear that one, not the majority of security practitioners may not want to develop inside of uh, an application or it, uh, inside of a developer's world or in a DevOps practitioner's world. And so we want to bring something that makes it easy for the, the group. But in the same vein, we are also bringing some of these bleeding edge tools that may not be as well maintained as we would like. So I think that the lesson there is really a security practitioner is one, it's great to bring the new stuff and we should also be willing to either maintain that internally or ensure that it is also following the same, the same thing that we're preaching, which is making sure that you're up to date with your open source software. Yeah, no, I agree with all that. And I would say that a lot of these tools, especially recently, or some of the tools that are more focused around cloud, there's not a lot of adoption day one. There's not a lot of buzz around some of them, but you see it as time goes on a year in, right? There starts to be this kind of cascading effect where it becomes ubiquitous, right? And so it's one of those things that being an early adopter of that is not necessarily bad. And I mean, there's a lot of cases, it can be good. If you have the skills, you can contribute, you can start to shape the future of that project, or at least contribute to that common goal or mission. 
Um, and I, I think that's really important. I mean, I, I do make uh, a pretty big deal about giving back to open source because uh, a lot of us take so much from it. That <laughs> if at the very least, all you're doing is updating documentation or making one or two line changes, like it's still better than nothing. Um, so I, 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 but I think it's important, right? That if it's not something that you're going to throw in production, it's, it's probably the barrier to entry is a lot lower. Um, I'm thinking like your TFSEC of the world, right? Where it's just doing, I shouldn't say just doing, but it's linting to find security issues in code and, and doing static analysis on a, a, lang a markup language that doesn't get a lot of visibility otherwise, not covered by your, you know, your, your other more mainstream commercialized security tooling. And, and that's, that's a really good thing because it, that, I think there's a lot of that right now where um, you have these kind of gray areas where you don't really have commercial tooling that's covering it and it's only open source. And so you have to, again, make that judgment call of, can I adopt this because I have no other alternative? Right. If I adopt it and it goes bad, what is the ramifications? And usually in a lot of cases, especially as it related to like a build pipeline or something, it, it's fairly minimal. It's like, as long as it's not like exfilling your code to... Uh, some nefarious country, uh, I, I think you're 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 fairly good. So I mean, maybe have a little bit of due diligence there. Don't just adopt anything on GitHub, but at the same time, um, it, it's kind of a judgment call of weighing the impact of of that of a poor consequence of of adopting a given tool. Yeah, no, I I agree, um, and that that sort of brings up a, another point. And I wanna I know we're running a little bit late on this one, but I do want to get into this portion of open source which is we've talked about how to decide on open source that we want this well-maintained project. We want to go through this process of ensuring that there is some maintenance involved there and there's some commitment to maintain it internally, even if it's not maintained externally. But in situations where these outdated libraries or outdated open source components are so legacy that updating becomes a problem, whether that's because of you know dependencies, not mapping correctly or that one oh, dependency man. relies on something else that uh, can't be updated be you know you can't update to version two because you know this other library that it relies on can't be updated to version 1.5 and so on and so forth that's a huge problem from a security perspective and what i'd like to get from you all is what are your major challenges with that either like are you just as frustrated by it what it, how can we help those kinds of things because i think that approaching an open source um supply chain in it inside of an organization that is that legacy is one of the largest challenges that we face in security um going into legacy organizations yeah that's that's a super prevalent issue uh I've, I've dealt with that more times than i can count it's 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 awful and I, I honestly think it puts developers in the shoes of a security engineer because i've i've seen requests where you know hey some library is facing some major security vulnerability just you know bump up 1.0 to 2.0 it'll be fine and that just cascades into this dependency hell of a hundred things you need to do and now you're basically reevaluating basically reevaluating your entire life and seeing, you know, should I just get rid of this application altogether? And, and <laughs> I, I, I honestly think the, the biggest uh, hurdle that you have to deal with at, at that point is, is who's your sponsor? You've got security saying, hey, we need to get this done and you're trying to meet your own product goals. And it's, it's really hard when something escalates that in, in such a severe manner in that sense where you really just need to 
pause and pivot and figure out how you're going to approach this. And sometimes it just gets ignored. I'll be honest. I've, I've seen situations where, hey, there's a security vulnerability. Sorry, this is hard. I'm not going to do this right <laughs> now. And then that conversation just gets dropped. And then a year later, someone's like, why is this still a thing? And you're like, well, it's hard. That's that's my only excuse. And you know, you're just focused on on your own stuff. So it's it's tough. You you need to have that 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 sponsor of, hey, this is this is tech debt, this is security debt, this needs to get addressed. At some point it will bite us. You need to pay down that that coding credit card, if you will. Right. So so given that I mean, and I think this is one thing that you uncover if you dig into this, is that as a as a security practitioner, you have two choices here. You can either get really frustrated that it's not being updated and just continue to badge your development to do it, or you can sort of take that mindset that the development team sees this as just as much of a problem as you do, but they cannot prioritize it because of some reason. So how can security work with development to to help get that prioritization or how do you see like what is i don't know maybe like a development channel that a security practitioner can use to prioritize open source software updates it's it's i mean to me it's all about impact it's if we do this what will we gain from it and it's it's just like any other you know non fancy pretty feature that you're implementing it's hey I'm going to spend five less hours a week trying to get this out the door. I'm going, the, the system is going to run twice as fast. Uh, having a security engineer being able to bring that data up to, up to you know, stakeholders in general and, to, and tell them, hey, if we don't do this, these are the possible ramifications. This is, uh, th this is the current security threat we're facing. Look at you know these five companies who are using the same library. This one specific one got affected in this manner. Either you know some data got leaked or whatever. You know what whatever threat occurred happened, and this is where we're facing. And I'd like us to to actually look at this and prioritize this on a roadmap. Got it. So if so, would you say that if security approached you and said, hey, look. There's a really big security vulnerability in this particular library. If we updated, can you spend some cycles telling me what that would give you from a development perspective? Would that be a reasonable ask? You know, like, let's say that I need to update, I don't know, like some spring version. And I'm like, is there any is there anything that you can use this library for that would give you, not the security vulnerability, but that would enhance your workflow or help you out? Or are there any features that you're looking for that I can sort of attach this build out to so that I can not only get my security vulnerability resolved, but also like help you out in some way? It's an, that's an interesting point. I, I honestly don't know if that would, that would relate to uh, prioritization, honestly, in general. I, I, I think saying, hey, I'm going to fix this threat and you get these three nifty features out of the box. <laughs> I, I think that's, I mean, that's, that's the same, that's Maybe the same argument. Like a, car with... a carnival salesman, like, <laughs> Hey, you know, uh, fix this vulnerability. You'll get these three nifty features. <laughs> I'll give you a magic ring. Yeah. Answers exactly. all your wishes. No, I mean, it, it's, it's, that's, that's tech debt. It's to me, that's the same thing. It's just, we don't have time for that. You don't need that right now. It's not affecting us right now. Where, where I think the, the, the bigger, the bigger push would be, it's not affecting us, but it could, and it could in these, specific scenarios and look at these companies that have already been affected. This is well, a see, real problem. And that's that's kind of the challenge with security too, because that doesn't always win, right? Right. 
One of the challenges with security, and the reason that I asked about the enablement question, is that when we talk to organizations about anything that generates fear, it only goes so far because there's no monetary value associated with it, where it's much easier for me yep. to say, well, this will provide you with a function or this will provide you with some capability that it, that enhances your revenue or enhances whatever you care about. Fear is definitely a, a method to get what you want, but sometimes using that card, I guess, too much can be can negatively impact the security organization because it's like you always come to me with things that might happen where come to me with something that I can use or come to me with something that can enable my organization. So right. My it's like it's like really the boy like, who cried wolf. Right. So how, say, it's just like crying wolf. And the problem okay. on the security side is that if you cry wolf and folks react to it, it never happens anyhow. And so you never get that kind of feedback loop of, well, I said this, you guys fixed it. So therefore it didn't happen. So since it never happened, it's not, it's not going to resonate. It's not, I'm not going to remember it. So I, I definitely, it's, it's a very unique position to be in and I, I don't envy it in the least bit, but it, it's, it's certainly a difficult uh, sort of politics to navigate. Like so, Schrodinger's DDoS attack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's, that's sort of what I'm saying is from your perspectives, with open source, or we'll focus on open source, we'll take everything else to another episode, but what can security do to provide you with some some, and some capability to go and sell that internally? You know, I think we all have a pretty good relationship between development security and DevOps, and that's why we're having this conversation. So if I were to come to you tomorrow with some security vulnerability, and I know I'm not going to get buy-in for whatever reason, you know, how, how can I, what can I ask you to do that's reasonable that will help me discover like a way to make this more attractive? That is a very good question. I don't believe I have the answer to it. We're answering hard questions, people. Answering the tough questions. Yeah. I mean, at least from a developer, if you make it fast, you make it easy and you compromise, developers will be willing to do it because they always want to take the fastest, easiest route. If they can just stick in a library, if they can just bump up an upgrade without it destroying their entire universe, they're willing to do that. And and the simpler it is, the the less less people you need to convince it's important because it'll just get passed under the rug. That's a that's a good point. So what we could do from a security perspective is look at so we could probably use that fear the how it's happened to other companies, everything that you mentioned to to focus on these critical severe vulnerabilities. But for things that we just want done because we know it's going to be less headache for everyone later, we could sort of focus on uh, these things that have performance in performance increases or or reduce complexity overall. So you know you could even go to a development team and say, hey, I have the security issue. It's a medium. Uh, you know, whatever, my open source software scanners tell me this is a medium, but will this give you any performance increases and will it make your life easier in any way? Which should be your follow-up questions to that to see how you can maybe work that in. And then you can start to knock down some of these security vulnerabilities that are less severe, but help the overall team. And I think that that, again, helps with this relationship saying, okay, I'm, I'm looking out for you here. You know, we'll, we, we know all these highs are really hard, but there's a couple mediums in here that we can sort of make some make some headway on and they help you guys out as well. 
And and I I think that that just goes along with with demystifying the the other groups in in this conversation. It's I'm I'm sure there's a bunch of developers out there that have maybe l zero to no security experience, and and you hear things like the simplest of ideas like cross-site scripting or SQL injection, and they're like that sounds horrifying. Like is someone shoving SQL somewhere where it doesn't belong? That I don't know what that means, but like. That sounds awful and I don't want to deal with it. And if you have someone from security saying it's really not that bad, it's really just like, hey, it's these two line changes and you integrate that and you see a developer like, oh, this makes sense to me now. I could make a library and share this among all of our applications and it will take me about five seconds. This is great. Right. And right. it's not scary anymore. <laughs> yeah. And on, and on the flip side of that, development teams, DevOps teams, if there's anything that you can bring to security that you want to get approved and and it has some security functionality in there that makes their lives easier, that's a really good way to sort of get what you're wanting pushed out the door because security, uh, something like React, right, that has some of these built-in security functions, right? that's a lot easier for for a security practitioner to to look at and say yes, especially if you're knowledgeable about the security issues that they're going to talk about. Yeah, I will say at the end of the day, some of it just feels like basic hygiene, right? Like it's similar to tech debt. You do have to pay that price every so often, even if it isn't going to make your life any better. You just you just need to fix some of those issues because it's it's part of basic hygiene, right? And you can't just kick the can down the road forever and, and ignore them. So I I, I got I guess it, it is for security, I understand it's always kind of a game of trying to convince folks that this is the right one to, to move on. But even from like the DevOps side, from the dev side, a lot of it is really just understanding that this is part of the basic block and tackle of work. You know, this is part of writing an application is making sure that it's up to date with whatever libraries it's using. Exactly. Exactly. So um, I know we ran a little bit over, but, uh, you know, I, and now that there's there's three of us on here, um, I think the conversations might run a little bit longer and hopefully people are sticking around. But I think that wraps it up for this episode. We've got some more things to, to sort of touch on. Thanks, Simon, for finally coming on board to join us. And thanks, Jameson, for being here. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Good, good, com <laughs> good conversations. <laughs> That's right. So... Look, we are uh, we are finally up on Twitter at r2dso.com. Uh, you can follow follow us there if you have any anything that you want to say or ask on these episodes. Um, this is episode two. It looks like in episode three we're going to break down some actual topics now that we've uh, introduced everyone. So thank you everyone for listening, and we hope to see you in episode three or at least hear some questions from you. Thanks. <laughs>